Let us pray together. God of great mercy, God of Sabbath day and of rest, we ask that you would enter into our hearts and our minds that we might have a sense of your rest, that we might ease into it, claim it as a gift from you, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. uh, One of our choir members astutely observed that I've stopped preaching from the, I mean, I've, I've only been preaching from the pulpit. I stopped preaching from the floor, which is actually my preferred way to preach. So I'm reclaiming that today, since especially only two people are brave enough to sit in the front two pews, and I feel so far away, so... If any of you want to come down, you're welcome to come down. I also neglected to say in our greetings that Susan DeSelms, our Minister of Music, is not with us today. She is traveling in Israel with Temple Shir Tikva, where she is also the choir director. And so we actually just heard from her this morning by the miracle of technology and text message. She's doing well and in Haifa on her way to Nazareth. And so our prayers go out to her for safe travels. Um, Also, you may have heard that our facilities manager, Jamie Matheny, had a uh, injury last week and has had successful surgery on Friday and is recovering, but will probably be out for about two months. So there's a lot of ramping up on staff and volunteers uh, on that front. And I'm grateful to be here today with Amy, our associate pastor, with Jasmine, our seminarian, and with our section leaders, and also with Joseph Fat, our assistant director of music. It's good to be with all of you. Um, how many of you had a chance to read my blog this week? Great, thank you. I'm going to repeat it anyway, so if you didn't uh, read it, you can hear a little bit more. Last week, I was away for about six days on a clergy conference called Credo. Credo is the Latin word for I believe, or what I give my heart to. It is one of the foundational phrases of our faith when we sing or speak the creeds, even though we are not a creedal church, we are more of a covenantal church, but... Credo is the first word, credo in unum deum, I believe in one God. That is the start of the credo. This idea of what I give my heart to. Now, these credo conferences were started by a bunch of Episcopalians for their clergy about 20 or 30 years ago, and then the Presbyterians figured out how to do this, and the United Church of Christ, the denomination in which I have my ordination, started doing this. And it's a little bit of a break to kind of step back and assess where your life is at, in many different areas, vocationally, spiritually, physically, psychologically, and financially. And you do a lot of prep work for it. You have workshops and plenary sessions. You have individual consultations, as well as some time just to dig into it on your own and figure out what you want to do, and then to come up with a plan of how you want to go forward. It's a great gift from our pension board. It's a great gift from all of you because you help fund the pension board that Amy and I receive as your pastors. And it is almost entirely paid for by the pension board. Now, why would you do this for pastors? It might seem obvious to you, but pastors, like a lot of other jobs and professions, get burnt out. And I will tell you, I look around at my colleagues and I see a lot of burned out pastors. I see pastors who are not taking care of their health, their heart attacks waiting to happen. Or they may not have the systems around us because they're pouring all of their energy into the church and they don't have social networks around them to support them outside of the church. 
There are all sorts of pitfalls in this particular profession, as there are in any profession. What I wrote you this week is that one of the reasons this happened, I think, is because most of us go into ministry because we want to preach the Word. We want to delve into Scripture. We want to help people with their spiritual lives. We want to be with you in times of hardship to help you figure out your systems of resilience, both in good times and bad times. We want to work for social justice and the things that bring about change. But a lot of us get bogged down by the administration of running a local nonprofit that's called the local church. One of my colleagues who's a local pastor and a bit of a rock star in our denomination writes that the secret of being a pastor is it is 90% administration. This is a surprise to me, as it is maybe a surprise to you. A lot of it is air traffic control, making sure that this ministry team knows what this ministry team is doing and they don't collide. Or noticing that the finances are in good order with your faithful financial stewards, which we have several in this congregation who not only make sure that happens, but also educate me very helpfully on how that works. By doing uh, uh, fundraising, which is one of the things we have to do as pastors. You may know that our pledges here support 50%, 55% of our revenue, but it costs about $850,000 to run this church on a yearly basis, and we have many different revenue streams. Or also, managing a staff and managing volunteers is a big part of what we do. About six years ago, some of you know, I was at a clergy conference with a bunch of pastors, and I was with two seasoned senior pastors uh, at this table, and I said, what's the one thing you think I need to do, know to be an effective senior pastor? And without missing a beat, they said, know how to do regular performance reviews and know how to fire people. I was like, really? It's not about pastoral care or preaching or balancing all of those? No, that's what they said. Now, some of you know I've had to learn how to do those things on the job here. It's not a very happy thing to be able to do. It's all about fulfilling our mission. I've also learned how to do a criminal investigation. I've also learned how to avoid check-kiting schemes where people are trying to bring us into money laundering because they think churches are susceptible to that. In another church, not this one, I had to stop a restraining order on a special needs child by a member of the congregation. Uh, Some of my colleagues have it even worse. One of my colleagues walked into the parsonage and there was a triple murder-suicide of one of her staff members. Another of my colleague is in a fight with an insurance company right now about the burning of their building, which the insurance company will not cover rebuilding. This is all a part of learning to do a big job. My guess is a lot of you here know exactly what that's like. That we go into things with an understanding of why we're doing this, a deep commitment to something, And we may have some rose-colored glasses on about it. And we may get bogged down by the details or the hardships or the setbacks. And we have to stop and step back and take a little time to assess what are the deeper values. I'm aware of my doctor friends are mired in insurance paperwork all the time. They spend doing their jobs are teachers, who it's all about the testing of the student and making sure that that all goes according to the statistics we need. I'm also aware that those of us who maybe don't have jobs or are looking for jobs, that we're trying to live into that purpose of our life and things are not quite lining up. Or those of us who are getting an education, like Sean Acor, who has a great TED Talk. He said he was so excited to get into Harvard, and then when he got to Harvard, he realized everyone was so stressed out about being there. 
Where's the happiness and excitement and the deeper purpose of what you're doing? Which brings me to our scripture reading about Sabbath. Sabbath is a command. It is only one of two commandments of the Ten Commandments that is a direct command that we are to observe it. That we are to take time and step back. As you heard read, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, our God, your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or daughter or your servants, or your pets, or your co-workers, or your colleagues. For in six days God made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, and on the seventh day God rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. It sounds very beautiful, doesn't it? My guess is there are some of us here who read that and we say, yeah, right. How does that work? There's a little book that theologian Walter Brueggemann published five years ago called Sabbath as Resistance. Saying no in a culture of now. He writes that Sabbath is actually resistance against a market economy that demands productivity all the time, 24-7. That we are driven by an economy that operates on needs and desires that it creates to keep us restless, that keeps us feeling inadequate, unfulfilled, and in pursuit of what we think might fulfill our desires. Brueggemann says we've become a 24-7 culture of multitasking in order to achieve, to accomplish, to perform, and to possess in systems that require us to want more, to have more, to own more, to use more, to eat and drink more, creating a rat race of restlessness that leads to increased anxiety. Does that ring true for anybody here? Sabbath is God's call to say, stop. Just stop listening to all that. Stop getting caught up in that. It's a hard thing to do because it's all around us. It's God's call, as our Buddhists might say, to be more mindful, to practice mindfulness in a culture that becomes increasingly mindless, which we're told what to think and how to act in very insidious ways that start controlling our mindsets. He also compares our current market economy to what Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites in Egypt when they were enslaved. They had to keep working more. They had to make more bricks. They had to make more grain. They had to keep at it. He said they were lazy all the time. They had to keep working all the time. Why? To aggrandize his wealth and power in the world. That was the ultimate concern. And when the commandments came along later as the Israelites were released into the wilderness, the commandment to keep Sabbath was to say, you don't have to go by Pharaoh's rules. There is a deeper calling in your life called God, the source of your being. And Brueggemann outlines that Sabbath is both resistance, meaning just by actually stopping the action, we are a visible reminder that it's not all about the Mishigas around us. That it's actually listening to God's deeper call. He even goes on to say that in our anxious society, one of the great seductions of Sabbath is how soccer practice invades the rest day. Families largely 
contained in market theology think of themselves as helpless to resist against this. That's just one little example. He also says Sabbath is alternative because it turns away from all that demanding, chattering, pervasive presence of advertising and what he calls the great liturgical claim of professional sports. I would add the 24-7 news cycle that beats the same points over and over and over that tend to devour all of our rest and mind time. Instead, Sabbath is a time to claim that we are open, that we're willing to receive the gifts of God. Brueggemann says that's staggering because we are so accustomed and convinced that we have to be on the initiating end of things, that we need to keep the world going. But actually, God is in charge of that. At this retreat I was on, one of our colleagues shared with me, shared actually with all of us, of how she got so caught up in her ministry of thinking it was all about her. She was working on national level and regional levels. She's a big, she is a big hotshot in our denomination as well. She's quite accomplished and well-known. And then she decided to start serving a local church. And as soon as she started to serve that local church, she got hit with a thud of depression that shut down all of her systems one by one. She said, I didn't realize how, much, how many systems I had going on because it took me so much energy to get them going again. And she said, I found myself in this mind cycle of where I thought, well, I have to do this because I wrote the curriculum for this and I need to go out and teach it. I'm the only one who can do this. And she looked around at all her fellow clergy and said, you ever felt like that? We all nodded in agreement. She said, I started getting resentful, like, who had put me in this position? Why am I here? She looked around at all of us. You ever feel like that? We knew exactly who put us there. Ourselves. I know this isn't limited to clergy, which is why I share it with you. Because Sabbath is an invitation for all of us, and it's something that clergy are called to model for all of us, to stop and notice what God is doing around us. As another colleague of mine says, it's an opportunity to turn out the lights so you can see the stars better. It's a time to stop and listen to our own heartbeats, to calm that restless anxiety in our souls and our minds, to reclaim control of our minds and hearts, to dedicate them to God so they don't need to be dictated by the forces of the market or advertising or the yammering of the 24-7 news cycle, but to stop and listen for God, that abundant life force in our universe and all the ways that she is ever-present, ever-spinning, ever-sustaining in spite of our desperate attempts to be in a rush to look around and act busy all the time, to think that it all relies on our own productivity. I'm aware that Jesus messed with this because he was healing on the Sabbath, he was doing other things on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were always calling him on it. He messed it up. He didn't think it always had to be on Saturday. He thought it could be on other days. Maybe your day is not Sunday. Maybe it's a different day of the week. He was also always trying to get away. And people are always tugging at his tunic and trying to get him back. You can read that again and again in the Gospels. He said, though, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, 
for my yoke is easy. Literally, my yoke is a good fit and comfortable. And my burden is light. Sabbath is a day to enjoy, to do those things you love. Amy reminded me that making love is considered a mitzvah in the Jewish tradition on the Sabbath. Turning off from your technology is a great sort of discipline. As a pastor said at my installation at the last church, we are all called to do Sabbath because it brings us joy and cultivates joy. And we all need to do that. And it may be hard. You may think there's no possible way I can take 24-7 off from all the other things I'm doing. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Try just a few hours. See if you can stop doing everything for two or three hours. Go for a walk. Go look at the water. Enjoy a garden. Do something that brings you joy. And then like anything else, an exercise program or losing weight or learning to play the piano, set small little goals for yourself to keep working at it, to rest, to stop, and to savor what God has already provided for us. I believe that our salvation, our well-being, depends on doing this. I invite us all to support one another in that act. That it is up to God. And with God, we can do great things together. Taking time to remember who God is in our lives. Amen.